Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome. The trope that dead men tell no tales is demonstrably false, at least when applied to a document archive. Letters, diaries, and handwritten notes tell many tales. This summer, two graduate students from the University of Central Florida learned this firsthand when they paid a visit to the Frank Laumer Center for Seminole War Studies at the Seminole Wars Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. The public history interns learned one big tale here and a series of smaller ones, from a long-dead soldier from the Second Seminole War and his more recently deceased muse. The soldier was Private Ransom Clark, one of only three soldier survivors of the Dade Battle of December 28, 1835. His muse was Frank Laumer, a land developer with a sideline as Seminole Wars historian and a dedicated chronicler of Clark's life and military service. In his dogged research to tell Clark's story, Frank Laumer followed the trail wherever it took him. That led him to a cemetery in upstate New York and permission from Clark's descendants to see if he could verify the wounds that Clark said he had sustained in the battle. How did Frank Laumer go about this? Well, he's no longer with us, but his copious correspondence tell his tale for what he was looking for and why. In this episode, Lisa LaPena and Olivia Aldridge the two UCF public history grad students join us to discuss the revelations they found in the Foundation's archives about the exhumation of Ransom Clark. They tell what they learned about the Seminole Wars via Clark's story, and they tell how they went about examining this scholarly first-hand source. Lisa LaPena, Olivia Aldrich, ladies, welcome to the Seminole War. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you for having us. We'll get to the Ransom Clark archives in a moment, but to get us started, tell us, how did you find yourselves cataloging paper archives about the Seminole Wars? As graduate students in the public history program at UCF, we're required to do an internship of some kind. But for me personally, I knew that I wanted to do something in the archives somewhere, working with materials hands-on. And it was Dr. French who gave me this opportunity. It was really the first thing that he mentioned that I kind of grabbed onto and was interested in. And you, Olivia? Pretty much the same way as Lisa. It was through a meeting with Dr. French talking about getting some experience in an archive hands-on as well. He mentioned that the Seminole War Foundation was actively seeking help to handle the Laumer collection and that he really wanted to get students out there. And because of that, that's why I accepted that internship. You are public history grad students. What is public history? Public history is, I like to think of it as history for the people. 
creating programs for the communities to engage with local history, which is so important. Growing up in South Florida, I didn't really have a lot of opportunities to learn about local and state history. So I think that's what makes public history so important, is that it it breaks historical concepts down into terms that the public can understand and interact with. For me personally, I studied art history as an undergraduate. It was never really my intention to study just plain old history. Never considered myself a historian with a capital H. I was always interested in some other element that made history feel less. I don't want to say boring because <laughs> rigid historians are <laughs> are going to be um, angry at that, but I wanted something that was more engaging with others. Exactly, yes. Doing history with academic training outside of the academy. And that's a lot of archival work, reaching out to communities and their like, histories and making sure it's presented well. Very hands-on in the sense that you're not just just in the ivory tower. You go outside of it and you reach out to the people that you are trying to engage with directly. What surprised you about what you uncovered? When it comes to really unique documents that you cannot get a hold of online or on online databases, it might be a little different. But for us, we have a lot of information we need at the palm of our hands. So to see Laumer's experiences and struggles with research as it was is probably the most worthwhile story that we got from the archive, for me at least. It's just so impressive, really. As I was looking through all of his research materials, all I could think of was, wow, I wish I was this passionate about literally anything. So for him having a day job, in the land business, hard work in itself, but after that, after long days of work, coming back to essentially clock in for another shift with all this research, wow, just the persistence of that. And, and it's something that he clearly loved doing. So I think that's just really inspiring. When it came to requesting research, there was a couple letters I came across where he asked for something and then the person looked up the wrong thing and sent him information on the wrong thing because his search term might not have been clear enough for them. So even though it took weeks for them to get back to him in the first place, he would just send another polite letter saying, oh, you misheard my request or misread my request. It's actually this. Never really mean about it. Laumer did keep everything we learned, but he also reused paper. So sometimes he would print things out on paper that had other emails on the back of it that weren't really related to his research. And one of them was an email to someone he had hired to do some work for his house and how they didn't do what they promised they would do or what he paid them for. And it was a letter, an email threatening action if they didn't help or do what they said they would do. So I can see the firmness, especially in any aspect of his life. But when it came to research, he tended to stay very polite and professional, even if he wasn't getting what he needed or wanted from them. He was very pleasant in all of the correspondences that I found with other researchers, other businesses even, and he never really lost his cool, so to speak. He was always very polite, but when he would talk with the 
other board members or with close friends. He would still be polite, but he would just be really funny. I remember there was one email regarding the foundation was looking to order a replica of a cannon, and they were looking for the right person to do it, I guess. And they had been corresponding with this one person for a while who Frank had dubbed the cannon man. And they just couldn't reach an agreement for whatever reason. And I remember reading Frank said, I don't know if I'm the world's worst communicator or if this guy is just strangely obtuse, which is just so funny and eloquent. (laughs) Even then, he was still more or less polite. (laughs) Oh, yeah, always be nice. That's my motto with everything. You don't ever know what people are going through, especially when they're working. So always being polite, having some sense of decorum when reaching out to other researchers or libraries or anything like that. Just always good to be professional and polite, even if your search ends up as a dead end. And it's very easy to get frustrated in the research process, but it's just so important to not let your frustrations out on other people who are just trying to help in whatever way they can. He had a lot of printed out email correspondence, email threads. I think a bulk of the files was those printed emails, the ones that we went through. There was also genealogical records and duplicates of those records, like family trees that he or other researchers had created of the soldiers he was researching. There were photos of the Ransom Clark exhumation. He also kept envelopes and the receipts for the envelopes of items he sent off to people or things people sent to him. He'd keep those envelopes as well. I found a lot of things I wasn't expecting at first, especially there were a couple folders that had just a wealth of information about battle reenactments and replica artillery and so many different businesses or individuals even that have entered this business of replica artillery or weaponry. So there was a huge file full of different catalogs for different businesses and things for uniforms and also folders about the weather conditions. He reached out to so many, so many people. It's almost hard to wrap my head around. Just anything that you can imagine about that day or anything. There are just so many examples. He thought of everything, everything. (laughs) Certainly it was a daunting challenge for you. How did the UCF archivists help you out? Lisa had reached out to the UCF archives to see if there were any people we could meet with to talk about the task at hand. Because I would say about three weeks in, we were still pretty at a loss as to what to start on or how to go about cataloging the documents. We met with Mary Rubin and Adam Hunt at UCF Archives over a Zoom call where we were able to ask them all of our questions we had regarding the collection, how we should handle it, the problems we were running into. And through talking with them, they recommended that we just make a basic inventory and that's where we should start and that future interns can build upon that and begin reorganizing if they need to, moving files into better archival housing or tackling the back room of the archive because there's a, a room there that is filled with stuff that hasn't really been put into a spot yet. Once we met with them and we got the inventory idea going, we were able to start moving really quickly and cataloging the documents. 
And I think that's one of the best things about that meeting with Mary and Adam was that they reassured us that it's going to be okay. They knew how long this process can be of taking an inventory of a collection. And so they just reassured us that we were on the right track. They gave us the confidence to continue with the project in the direction that we were going. So you've looked at a lot of files. What was the most unusual among the bunch and why? Definitely Clark. the ransom Clark. <laughs> yeah. Exhumation. The exhumation folder or, uh, with the photos. That was the coolest folder we came across. It's the story that I've taken away from the archive. So if people were to ask me about Frank Laumer, for me in my head, the Ransom Clark exhumation was a very defining moment for him because I got to see it happen all firsthand through those documents. All right, our listeners know that Ransom Clark was one of three soldiers who survived the Dade battle. He gave an extensive account and then toured the country speaking about his experiences. He claimed extensive wounds, but in the years since his premature death at age 28... People have questioned his veracity about it because they just seem too incredible. Frank Laumer, being ever thorough, saw an opportunity to clinch the case one way or another, and that was by exhuming the bones of Ransom Clark. Ransom Clark claimed to have sustained injuries to his, I want to say his head, shoulder, lung, and pelvis, maybe? Yes, and he had to fumble his way next town. Which is like 50 miles, I think. Digging up Ransom Clark's bones was not universally accepted in the community. It was definitely controversial. All respect to Lomer, but I think it is still very controversial. The one thing that crossed through my mind as I was looking at the document and the photographs is just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Yeah, so I think that there's definitely some contention there, especially with the handling of human remains and the remains of an American soldier, really. So there's definitely a lot there to analyze still. Whether you think it was ethical or not, it was still a major thing that happened. And we have these photographs. They're beautiful photographs. I can't talk enough about how stunning some of the images are, but it's definitely a little dicey. I also wonder how, I mean, that's such a drastic step to exhume a body. But I wonder, is it really necessary or important to know if Ransom Clark did embellish his story a little bit to each their own, right? Um, Just because I don't think something is important like that doesn't mean that it's not. It's just my hot take. This happened in... 1977, right? So back then, it was before my time, so I don't know what technologies they had available to do a less invasive study of that. But I would like to think now there's probably some kind of scans they can do. Frank Glamour clipped the articles that were condemning the exhumation, and then he clipped the articles where he responded. These were articles we found in one of the folders. Um, And it was original newspaper article. He had clipped them. And one was titled Detestable Desecration. And it was to the editor from someone. And it talked about how could someone think of doing such a thing as exhuming the grave. And that Ransom Clark provided a service to the nation through his military service. And yet, because 
a historian wanted simple facts, he found it okay to exhume the grave. Laumer's responses were mostly, I'm sorry you feel that way, <laughs> kind of. And <laughs> yeah. that now we know for sure that Clark was telling the truth. And if we hadn't exhumed the grave, we might not even know the veracity of his claims about the war or the battle altogether. He could have found out he was lying about his wounds. He could have been lying about his statements about the battle itself, not just his survival. Does it look like Frank Laumer followed the appropriate protocols of his day? In contacting family members, for sure. Throughout his research on these soldiers, he was very good about contacting their current descendants and trying to reach out to them about this research in case they wanted to know or had any information. As in terms of going about the excavation physically, I don't know enough about the processes of exhumation to make that statement, but we did see the photos. A lot of the bones were handled barehanded, placed in buckets, and then brought up from the grave to someone else who took them to the makeshift mortuary Laumer had established in someone's garage, which was a sawhorse with pieces of plywood on top. I read about current procedures for exhumation, and that involves all of the human remains being placed in a new coffin and casket to be sealed and identified later. The area of exhumation must be disinfected. There should be archaeological supervision, stuff like that. That's current. I don't know enough about what it was like during the time that Laumer did it. This was 1977, and it could have been completely different. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely can see how there would be public pushback on that. And Frank Laumer didn't really, as best as he could, respect the remains of an American serviceman. And I think that it might have been instance where he was a little starry-eyed and excited about the process, maybe too focused on it to think about the implications of it because he was going in there, not just him, but others as well, handling the bones without gloves on. He can say, oh, I was doing it respectfully, but it doesn't really seem that way because he might have done it with respectful intent. But through the photographs, it does appear that the sanctity of the grave, it was certainly disturbed. It could have been handled a lot better. I remember reading that after reinterring the bones some years later, got him a new grave marker to show respect. The they was Frank Laumer. He wrote to the Veterans Administration and asked them to install a brand new VA standard headstone. He then approached Ransom Clark's descendants and asked them if he could purchase the old headstone. They consented and he promptly donated that to the Tampa Bay History Center where it's on display today, telling part of Ransom Clark's story. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Something else our listeners may already know is that Frank Laumer died at age 92 on the same day, November 18th, as Ransom Clark died back in the 1840s. And on the one-year anniversary of his death, his daughter scattered Frank's ashes on Ransom Clark's grave, which to me anyway is a defining testament to Frank Laumer's great respect for Ransom Clark. Not to mention that he wrote a novel, Nobody's Hero, all about Ransom Clark as well. He definitely made an attempt then to preserve his legacy in a way. And exhuming the grave, his actions and in the process of it, could it have been better? But he absolutely did it out of respect, even if it was 
not to just dispel the rumors that Clark was lying. It was also to verify some really important facts about the Dade Massacre. And in that endeavor, he was respectful. It was just the process of Greg's exhumation. But I also do think, I'm thinking about the public. If public viewed the photos that we found access to, that's where you're going to see the opinions about whether or not it was desecration will pop up. They'll see how the bones were handled themselves. Considering Frank Lammer's approach to everything for his historical inquiries, what would you like to emulate that he did? Frank's persistence and his relentless drive to find the answers that he has questions about. I think that there is a lot to be learned about his process, especially because he wasn't formally trained as a historian or a researcher. So he was doing everything based on intuition, which I think is really impressive. I think if anything, that's the main takeaway for me is that he did whatever he could to answer his questions. The thing to learn from that is to be mindful of the larger implications of what your actions can do. We've mentioned most unusual. What was most surprising? The photos and just the scope of his research. It was almost like we were sleuthing for information too. It really grabbed our attention and we felt like detectives putting the pieces of the story together. So in like a meta way, we were like Laumer ourselves. What most frustrated you in your task? Probably all of the email correspondences, the way that he printed them out. He would use any piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, or whatever that would fit in the printer and print on the opposite side. But sometimes he would print the same emails more than once. So that piled up, or there'll be one email response from the whole thread on one page. And then when someone else would respond, he would print that out too. So so much like pamphlet of just email correspondences. And I think that's really the only frustrating thing is just the amount of duplicate or seemingly arbitrary information. But that's not really up to us to decide if it's arbitrary or not, because someone, I think, will find value in it in some way. I was just going to say, when it comes to the staples, and there were also paper clips on items, things that are going to be kept for a while, they don't need those items. The paper clips are the staples. They should be removed as soon as possible to prevent further damage. But mm -hmm. it is interesting to see how quickly they wore down because I remember emails that were stapled together that are only from like 2018, so not too far back, that the staple is already rusted. Wow. Yeah, and I think one thing to note about that is when you're making records for yourself or building up your own archive of information, usually you're not really thinking about how these documents will last for posterity. You're just thinking, okay, I printed this out. It's good. Let me just tuck it away somewhere. But there are so many other factors that are involved with preservation and things that you don't really think of right away that can be detrimental to the documents themselves. This is, if anything, a reminder of the kinds of materials that you're working with and how to properly store them so that they will last over time. And what advice did the UCF archivists give you? 
remove it was the advice. And also documents that are meant to be kept together, they make archival grade paper clips. They're all full plastic and they also don't bend the documents when you put them on. Just moving all of those staples and then replacing it with these archival paper clips. Also using archive paper to place in between sensitive documents so they don't wear each other out. Or putting these items in new file folders that are acid-free that won't show any damage from previous elemental wear. Because a lot of the documents we came across, I think may have been kept in his garage. A lot of them might have been exposed to humidity. And so because of that, paper documents, ink, stuff like that's all going to start decaying, for lack of a better word. So just making sure these items are kept somewhere that's climate controlled. How much knowledge about proper storing of documents did you have before this project? For me, I knew a little bit about how to properly store documents and things like that because my dad is a lifelong comic book collector (laughs) just from observing him and the way that he would store his comic books and things like that. I got a sense of how things can be done in a professional atmosphere. So I had a little bit of an understanding, but even now I still have a lot to learn about the the science of it. How have born digital documents changed the way that you approach research, acquisition, and preservation? The emergence of born digital records will make it easier, hopefully in the future, for people to access these items without needing the physical copy. And for those documents that are paper copies, you got to digitize them. What kind of benefits does that bring to the researcher? There's a lot of benefit to digitizing an archive for sure. Ease of access, creating inventory lists, some kind of database for all of this information. Because looking through it physically with your hands, it takes so long to find what you're looking for. In the digital age, we're all so used to this immediacy of the internet and things like that. So any collection would be benefited from digitization. What do you make of Frank Lommer's personality that comes through from these documents? He's definitely a funny guy. Just from like reading some of his responses and his emails to friends, he's very spirited, I guess, very lighthearted. Just a funny, cool guy, it seems. True. I actually identified a lot with Frank because I also don't have the same background in academia as most of my peers. I got my GED when I turned 16, so I didn't have the same high school experience as everyone else. So Frank can do attitude and his work, despite not being formally educated in history or research methodologies, it really resonated with me because I always felt like I didn't have the same formal education as others. So I found that to be really inspiring, that even if you don't have a formal education in something, that's not going to stop you from thinking these important and broad historical questions and finding the answers to them. The only thing that's really stopping you is you. I was listening to an episode of the Florida Frontiers podcast, and on the Seminole Wars podcast, too, there was an interview with Laumer. And he made a quote that was just so funny. He was talking about how he wasn't a scholar and that he wasn't formally educated, but he was saying he was persistent and that even a blind hog finds an acorn once in a while. (laughs) And I just thought that was great and inspiring. 
Both of you kept online student blogs during your assignment. What was the benefit of that, besides, of course, it being assigned to do? The blog posts were a requirement. It was our main assignment throughout the course of the internship, and it was meant to be a reflective narrative of what we were doing and how we were doing it and our concerns and the interesting things that we were reading about. I was just going to say that it is very helpful in the process overall with every week coming up with a blog post, an entry to post, I mean, because at the end of the semester, then you can look back and remember all the work that you did. Because I don't know if Olivia feels like this, but after the semester, I'm, oh, wow, that went by so fast. What did I even do? Looking back at this record that we made, it's so helpful in reminding us of the challenges that we faced and the ways in which we were able to overcome those challenges. That sums up the whole internship uh, very well, is that we tried to, or, and we did, create starting point for taking inventory or cataloging this collection for other researchers and other students and other people in general to pick up this task where we left off. It's always something that's going to be built upon. I still want to learn more about archival work. I wasn't daunted too much that I'm done with archives <laughs> and want to just focus on history. But I really did enjoy going through the original documents we came across, like the newspaper articles and the photographs, as well as the stories that emerged once we were able to focus on each individual file. So still very interested in archival work. Yeah, me too. I've always been interested in doing some kind of museum work because I did study art history in undergrad and I was a painting instructor for a while. So I've always been more interested in the art. But after this, I am still really interested in becoming an archivist and working more in the archives for my own research too. So the hands-on nature of it has helped solidify your learning and retention of what to do in archives? I think so. This is a really great example of how most archives or most personal collections, what they look like. Getting this hands-on experience in the trenches, I guess, of these documents that may not have been properly stored or preserved over the years, but that's kind of the reality of the game. I think this experience is invaluable in sort of building up our CV of experience in the archives. You had concerns, obviously, going into this project. How important was it then to formulate a educated plan of attack? Once we had the original meeting on the site with you and Dr. French, we were already a little bit overwhelmed because it was to start the process, and I had never started the process in archival work. So I was a little nervous that I wouldn't learn anything because the direction was on me. But after coming up with the system that we did and talking to the archivists and seeing what was in those files, I definitely can walk away with a good understanding of what archival work entails. Absolutely. And working with Olivia, having a partner with me on site and looking through the materials was so helpful. I can't imagine having to do this project alone would have just floundered or really struggled in just the huge scope of the materials. Having a partner to bounce ideas off of and to get support when I'm feeling overwhelmed. It was just so helpful. So you had the work, then you had the student blogs each week. Then you had to write a paper as well as come up with the inventory. And then you had to present in front of your peers and the professors. Tell us about that. The presentation, although it was 
stressful. And despite being a public historian, <laughs> public speaking gives me a great deal of anxiety. But essentially, it was to just show our professors, our supervisors, and our peers the work that we did through the semester and with our internship to also talk about where we want to go with this research and how this research will be used in the future. So it was just a learning tool, not only for us, but for our peers as well. What projects did some of the other interns do? There were 13 presentations with different people. There were quite a few different internships going on this summer semester. A group worked with the Maitland and H to continue some work they had done in the previous semester on creating a permanent public history exhibit. Another one was a food historian. She was able to create different food. She did field work cooking old dork recipes. There was one that was the Wells Built Museum, and he created elementary school curriculum for people who might visit the site. Harrison Smith, he worked with the Museum of Military History. He created a really cool exhibit. He actually got invited to be on their board of directors after his work there. It seems to me that all of us really had engaging and worthwhile and informative experiences in our respective institutions. I was really interested in the Wellsbilt Museum and making curriculum because I work in an elementary school as a media specialist, so that would have been really on par, but it's something to look forward to in the future. The OSC project and the field work with that was super cool to look at. So there was definitely, there's always a lot of good opportunities at the UCF internship. It just was so exciting to see all of the possibilities that our field has for us. There are so many different opportunities and places to work within this discipline. And I Mm -hmm. think it was just really awesome to see so many examples of that. It made me really excited for all the other students involved. It was just a fantastic experience for all of us to get out of the university and into the real world, I guess you could say. It was very easy for us to feel a little defeated by the task, just how monumental it was. We did have a great plan to get through both filing cabinets, but as we started looking through the materials and really seeing how rich this collection was and and to do good work, It's not about the quantity, but the quality of it. And I think that's the one thing that we really, we definitely struggled with it at first, but we came to accept it because we want to do good work that will last and be useful for other researchers. It was conflicting with being disappointed that we couldn't get through more because there is still so much that we didn't even get to look at. But really doing our best with the materials that we did have. We were definitely worried that we were a few weeks in without solid plan just because we were overwhelmed. And we wanted to create at least a good inventory document that could act as a finding aid that we future interns could build on it. So once we were able to do that, Lisa made that cataloging system for us, we were able to calm down and be like, okay, so now we can start with the document but future interns are going to be able to just get going once they get here. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's so important, too, because we did come into the project with big goals. We were especially interested in digitization and figuring out how 
the process to actually digitize a document. We were disappointed that we couldn't do that, but being realistic about our abilities and what we can handle in terms of the amount of documents, it's definitely an important part of the learning process. And that goes for anything, right? You have a certain idea of how something will go in your head. And then when you get to it, you get to the hands-on part of it. You're like, wait a second, this is a lot more than I thought. And so adapting to your predicament, I guess, is a super valuable tool. While it was disappointing for us not to get to everything that we wanted, it was a valuable learning exercise in how to plan effectively and to understand what you can handle, what your capabilities are within a certain time frame. Well, for me, I'm actually interested in doing another internship in the archives somewhere, mostly with digitization. So I'm definitely still interested in doing some hands-on work in the future, not sure when. (laughs) I think that this experience has definitely informed my decisions on the path that I want to take as a historian, as a budding archivist. I also am interested in pursuing another internship in the archives in the future. With the case we got here at the Seminole War Foundation, I definitely am interested in also digitization. I know we were both really excited about that, as well as foreign digital archiving. I'm interested in that as well, especially after seeing all of these emails that were printed out <laughs> and how, how we can better deal with foreign digital records. And what would you like to do with the knowledge that you've acquired from going through these archives? The Ransom Clark exhumation interested both of us quite a bit. During our showcase, they encouraged us to write about it and get it published because it's a story that we found out about and it'd be something interesting to bring to light. We haven't really discussed that further just because we're about to start our fall semester and it tends to be pretty busy. But it's definitely research that we are interested in or even future interns there could pick up on that because that is a very interesting subject to write about and get out there. Especially for public historians, I would say. The full story with Ransom Clark's exhumation is definitely relevant to the studies of a public historian, especially regarding public opinion. There is certainly a paper that can be in the works. Dr. French mentioned to Olivia and I that we should write and publish one. We are interested in that, but if we can't, then there absolutely is room for another researcher to take up that task. It's beneficial to anyone within the history program, whether it's undergrad or graduate level, just because of the archival work at hand, especially kind of like a grassroots archive in the sense that the organization of it was spearheaded by interns. But particularly for public history students because of Laumer as the subject, and the uniqueness of the collection being Laumer's research experiences as someone who is not an academic historian, which is public history. Also, I think that Olivia was spot on with that. Working in the archives, an experience like this is useful for undergraduates and graduates alike, because as history students, our research is going to be heavily based on archival work. So getting the experience in the archives is an important and invaluable tool for us. Getting this hands-on experience with paper materials is also something that's, that's important because 
I feel like most of the historians in our program, at least, our history research is primarily regarding materials that predate the internet. <laughs> so working in archives and digging up files and looking through all the papers is just a really, really great tool for us to have. In any way that our work can help other researchers or interested parties find what they're looking for, then that's all I could really ask for. A note to our listeners, anyone who'd like to get practical experience in organizing in archives, as Lisa and Olivia have described, please send me an email, semwarstrategy at gmail.com. This goes as well for anyone who wants to do research in the Frank Laumer Center for Seminole War Studies in Bushnell. As we conclude, I'll reverse the order. Olivia Aldrich, Lisa LaPena, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. And thanks for your great good work in our archives. I will date these experiences with me throughout my career. Absolutely. It's been a very worthwhile experience. It's the most amazing that we got to handle a public historian's collection and see how the process of research has changed. And that's a really unique point of view that we might not have gone at different archives, different internships. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.sumofwars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.